0: Section 14 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 14, Arianism by H. M. Gwotkin. Arianism finds its place in history as one of the four great controversies which have done so much to shape the growth of Christian thought. They all put the central question, desversen des kirstentums, but they put it from different points of view. For Gnosticism, is the Gospel history or is it an edifying parable? For Arianism, Is it the revelation of a divine son which must be final, or is it something short of this, which cannot be final? For the Reformation, is its meaning to be declared by authority, or is it to be investigated by sound learning? The scientific, or more truly philosophical, skepticism of our own time accepts the decision of the Reformation but raises afresh the issues of Gnosticism and Arianism as parts of the deeper question, whether the reign of law leaves any freedom to either God or man. The Arian controversy arose on this wise. Both Greece and Israel had long been tending in different ways to a conception of God as purely transcendent. If the Stoics made him the immanent principle of reason in the world, they only helped the forces which made for transcendence by their utter failure to show that the things in the world are according to reason. As the Christians also accepted any current beliefs which did not evidently contradict their doctrine of a historic incarnation, all parties were so far generally agreed, by the end of the second century. In times of disillusion, God seems far from men, and in the deepening gloom of the declining empire he seemed further off than ever. But a transcendent God needs some sort of mediation to connect him with the world. There was no great difficulty in gathering this mediation into the hand of a Logos as was already done by Philo the Jew in our Lord's time, and to assign him functions as of creation, and of redemption as Christians and Gnostics added. But then came the question, is the Logos fully divine or not? If no, how can he create, much less redeem? If yes, then the purely transcendent God acts for himself and ceases to be transcendent. The dilemma was hopeless. A transcendent God must have a mediator, and yet the mediator cannot be either divine or undivine. Points were cleared up, as when Tertullian shifted the stress of Christian thought from the Logos doctrine to the Sonship, and when Oregon's theory of the eternal generation presented the Sonship as a relation independent of time. But the main question was as dark as ever at the opening of the fourth century. There could be no solution till the pure transcendence was given up and the Sonship placed inside the divine nature, and this is what was done by Athanasius. There was no other escape from the dilemma that if the Son is from the divine will, he cannot be more than a creature. If not, God is subject to necessity. The controversy broke out about 318. Arius was no bustling heresiarch but a grave and blameless presbyter of Alexandria, and a disciple of the learned Lucian of Antioch. Only he could not understand a metaphor. Must not a son be later than the father and inferior to him? He forgot first that a divine revelation cannot be an affair of time, then that even a human son is essentially equal to his father. However, he concluded that the son of God cannot be either eternal or equal to the father. On both grounds, then, he cannot be more than a creature, No doubt a lofty creature created before all time to be the creator of the rest, but still only a creature who cannot reveal the fullness of deity. Begotten can only mean created. He is not truly God, nor even truly man, for the impossibility of combining two finite spirits in one person made it necessary to maintain that the created Son had nothing human but a body. Arius had no idea of starting a heresy. His only aim was to give a common sense answer to the pressing difficulty that if Christ is God, he is a second God. But if the churches did worship two gods, nothing was gained by making one of them a creature without ceasing to worship him and something was lost by tampering with the initial fact that Christ was true man. As Athanasius put it, one who is not God cannot create, much less restore, while one who is not man cannot atone for men. In seeking a via media between a Christian and a Unitarian interpretation of the Gospel, Arius managed to combine the difficulties of both without securing the advantages of either. If Christ is not truly God, the Christians are convicted of idolatry, and if he is not truly man, there is no case for Unitarianism. Arius is condemned both ways. The dispute spread rapidly. At the first signs of opposition, Arius appealed from the Church to the people. With common-sense doctrine put into theological songs, he soon made a party at Alexandria, and when driven thence to Caesarea, he secured more or less approval from its learned bishop, the historian Eusebius, and from other conspicuous bishops, including Constantine's chief eastern adviser, Eusebius of Nacomedia, who was another disciple of Lucian. As it appeared later, few agreed with him but there were many who saw no reason for turning him out of the church. So when Constantine became Master of the East in 323, he found a great controversy raging, which his own interests compelled him to bring to some decision. With his view of Christianity as essentially monotheist, his personal leaning might be to the Aryan side, but if he was too much of a politician to care greatly how the question was decided, he could quite understand some of its practical aspects. It was causing a stir in Egypt, and Egypt was not only a specially important province, but also a specially troublesome one. Witness the 80 years of disturbance from Caracalla's massacre in 216 to the suppression of Achilleus in 296. More than this, Arianism imperiled the imposing unity of the Church, and with it, the support which the empire expected from an undivided church. The state could deal with an orderly confederation of churches, but not with miscellaneous gatherings of schismatics. So he was quite sincere when he began by writing to Arius and his bishop Alexander that they had managed to quarrel over a trifle. The dispute was really childish and most distressing to himself. This failing, the next step was to invite all the bishops of Christendom to a council to be held at Nicaea in Bithynia, an auspicious name, in the summer of 325, to settle all the outstanding questions which troubled the eastern churches. If only the bishops could be brought to some decision, it was not likely to be disobeyed, and the state could safely enforce it if it was. Local councils, had long been held for the decision of local questions like Montanism or Paul of Samosata, but a general council was a novelty. As it could fairly claim to speak for the churches generally, it was soon invested with the authority of the ideal Catholic Church, and from this it was an easy step to make its decisions per se infallible. This step, however, was not taken for the present. Athanasius, in particular, repudiates any such idea. As we have already discussed the Council as sealing the alliance of church and state, we have now to trace only its dealings with Arianism. Constantine was resolved not only to settle the question of Arianism, but to make all future controversies harmless and this he proposed to do by drawing up a test creed for bishops, and for bishops only. This was a momentous change, for as yet no creed had any general authority. The Lord's baptismal formula, Matthew 28, verse 19, was variously expanded for the catechumen's profession at baptism, and some churches further expanded it into a syllabus for teaching, perhaps as long as our Nicene Creed, but every church expanded it at its own discretion. Now, however, bishops were to sign one creed everywhere. Whatever was put into it was binding, whatever was left out remained an open question. The council was to draw it up. The bishops at Nicaea were not generally men of learning, though Eusebius of Caesarea is hardly surpassed by Oregon himself. But they had among them statesmen like Hoses of Cordova, Eusebius of Nicomedia, and the young deacon Athanasius from Alexandria, and men of modest parts who were quite able to say whether Arianism was or was not what they had spent their lives teaching. On that question they had no doubt at all. The Arianizers mustered a score or so of bishops out of about three hundred, two from Libya, four from the province of Asia, perhaps four from Egypt, the rest thinly scattered over Syria from Mount Taurus to the Jordan Valley. There were none from Pontus or from any part of Europe or Africa north of Mount Atlas. The first act of the council was the summary rejection of an Arian creed presented to them. The deity of Christ was not an open question in the churches. But was it needful to put the condemnation of Arianism into the creed? Athanasius had probably but few decided supporters. Between them and the Arianizers floated a great conservative center party, whose chief aim was to keep things nearly as they were. These men were not Arians, for the open denial of the Lord's true deity shocked them, but neither would they go with Athanasius. Arianism might be condemned in the creed if it could be done without going beyond the actual words of scripture, but not otherwise. As they would have said, Arianism was not at all false, though it went too far. It maintained the Lord's pre and real personality, and might be useful as against the Sabellianism which reduced him to a temporary appearance of the One God. Athanasius and Marcellus of Ancyra were mistaken in thinking Arianism a pressing danger, when it had just been so decisively rejected. Only five bishops now supported it. So the conservatives hesitated, then Eusebius of Caesarea presented the catechetical creed of his own church, a simple document couched in scripture language, which left Arianism an open question. It was universally approved, Athanasius could find nothing wrong in it, and the Arians were glad now to escape a direct condemnation. For a moment, the matter seemed settled. Never was a more illogical conclusion reached. If the Lord's full deity is false, they had done wrong in condemning Arianism. If true, it must be vital. The one impossible course was to let every bishop teach or disown it as he pleased. So Athanasius and his friends were on firm ground when they insisted on revising the Caesarean Creed to remove its ambiguity. After much discussion, the following form was reached. We believe in one God, the Father All-Sovereign, Maker of all things, both visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God begotten of the Father, and only begotten, that is, from the essence, O Sia, of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one essence, Omo o Sion, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both things in heaven, and things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh, was made man, suffered, and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, cometh to judge quick and dead, and in the Holy Spirit. But those who say that there was once when he was not, and Before he was begotten he was not, and he was made of things that were not, or maintain that the Son of God is of a different essence, or created or subject to moral change or alteration, these doth the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematize. It will be seen at once. That the Creed of the Council differs a good deal from the Nicene Creed now in use, which is a revision of the Catechetical Creed of Jerusalem made about 362. That is not the work of the Council of Constantinople in 381 but displaced the genuine Nicene Creed partly by its merits and partly through the influence of the capital. However, it will be noted further that Apart from the anathemas, the stress of the defence against Arianism rests on the two clauses from the essence of the father and of one essence with the father, to which we may add that begotten, not made, contrasts the words which the Arians industriously confused, and that the clause was made man meets the Arian denial that he took anything human but a body. Now the essence o sia, of a thing is that by which it is, whatever we are supposing it to be. It is not the general ground of all attributes, but the particular ground of the particular supposition we are making. As we are here supposing that the Father is God, the statement will be first that the Son is from that essence by which the Father is God, then that He shares the possession of it with the Father, so that the two together allow no escape from the confession that the Son is as truly divine and as fully divine as the Father. The existence of the Son is not a matter of will or of necessity, but belongs to the divine nature. Two generations later, under Sumerian influences, a similar result was reached by taking essence in the sense of substance as the common ground of all the attributes, so that if the son is of one essence with the father, he shares all the attributes of deity without exception. The conservative centre struggled in vain. The decisive word, homoosion, of one essence with, is not found in Scripture, but there was no dispute about the canon, so that the Arians had their own interpretations for all words that are found in Scripture. Thus, to the Son is eternal, they replied, so are we. For we which live are always. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, delivered unto death. The bishops were gradually forced back on the plain fact that no imaginable evasion of Scripture can be forbidden without going outside Scripture for a word to define the true sense. And homoosion was a word which could not be evaded. No doubt it was a revolution to put such a word into the creed, but now that the issue was fairly raised by Constantine's summons, they could not leave the Lord's full deity an open question without ceasing to be Christians. Given the unity of God and the worship of Christ, and even the Arians agreed to this, there was no escape from the dilemma, homoousion, or creature worship. So they yielded to necessity. Eusebius of Caesarea signed with undisguised reluctance, though not against his conscience. To his mind the creed was not untrue, though it was revolutionary and dangerous, and he was only convinced against his will that it was needed. The Emperor's influence counted heavily in the last stage of the debates, for Constantine was too shrewd use it before the question was nearly settled, and in the end only two bishops refused to sign the Creed. These he promptly sent into exile along with Arius himself, and Eusebius of Nicomedia shared their fate a few months later. If he had signed the Creed at last, he had opposed it too long and been too intimate with its enemies. Let us now look beyond the stormy controversies of the next half-century to the broad issues of the Council. The two fundamental doctrines of Christianity are the deity of Christ and the unity of God. Without the one, it merges in philosophy or Unitarianism. Without the other, it sinks into polytheism. These two doctrines had never gone very well together and now the council reconciled them by giving up the purely transcendental conception of god which brought them into collision with each other and with the historical facts of the incarnation the question was ripe for decision as we see from the prevalence of such an unthinkable conception as that of a secondary god and if the conservatives had been able to keep it unsettled One of the two fundamental doctrines must before long have overcome the other. Had the unity of God prevailed, Christianity would have sunk into a very ordinary sort of deism, or might possibly have become something like Islam, with Jesus for the prophet instead of Muhammad. But it is much more likely that the deity of Christ would have effaced the unity of God, and in effacing it, have opened a wide door for polytheism, and itself sunk to the level of heathen hero-worship. As a matter of history, the churches did sink into polytheism for centuries, for common people made no practical difference between the worship of saints and that of the old gods. But because the Council of Nicaea had made it impossible to think of Christ simply as one of the saints, The reformers were able to drop the saint worship without falling into deism. End of section 14. Recording by Andrea Bertelli.